You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing the scientific method that underlies medicine, specifically the publication process. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University in Chicago. With me today is Dr. Catherine Spong, who is chief of the Pregnancy and Perinatology Branch of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, a graduate of the six-year honors program in medical education at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. She is also an associate editor of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This journal has the widest circulation in the specialty. Welcome, Dr. Spong. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. There are several thousand medical journals indexed in computerized databases such as Medline. Dozens of new journals are appearing every year as the scope and breadth of medical knowledge and research increases. Yet medical journals are under constant pressure to stay relevant and at least break even financially. We will look at some of these issues through the eyes of an associate editor at a leading specialty journal, Obstetrics and Gynecology. Dr. Spong, what steps uh, does the journal take to actually detect fraud or misconduct if the peer reviewers are concerned or raise an issue? When a peer reviewer raises a question as to duplicate publication or misconduct, the editors typically will talk about the issue that has been raised to try to determine what the best thing to do is. If it's about a duplicate publication, clearly you're going to look at the previous publication, you're going to look at the current publication, and commonly you talk to the authors to try to find out, you know, what is the disparity and what issue was raised. Um, It sometimes also requires talking with the institution that the author is from. Does the journal ever seek to have some of the original data or supplemental material beyond the manuscript submitted if there's a question raised? The instructions for authors do state that we may request to see some of the primary data, and we have done that on occasion. So that certainly is a possibility. A nuance or a detail that I find interesting is, do you guys ever ask to see an informed consent or two? Um, I think that would be possible to ask for. We have not had the need to do that to date, but it certainly is something that you could ask for, yes. As I recall, the journal does require that studies involving humans, which is practically the entire uh, material that the journal uh, publishes, has institutional review board oversight. Is that uh, correct? Right. All journal articles that are published are required to have institutional review board approval, and if they're an animal study, they have to have approval from their animal facility. In addition, for any clinical trial, it needs to be registered at one of the registries, one of the clinical trials registries. The other thing is if fraud or misconduct is uncovered or uh, suspected, what corrective action can a journal take beyond just not publishing the paper? Right. You you could not publish the paper. um, In general, these are things that are handled at the level of the institution, so the institution becomes intimately involved in what was going on. Um, and has specific policies and procedures that they do. So if the journal had an ethical concern, uh, the journal would, one, not publish a paper, but two, uh, notify the institution uh, that, uh, where the paper derived from. Typically, these are not clear-cut situations, and so it takes a lot of uncovering to try to figure out what the best approach is, and there's no single approach for every instance. So in general, it involves talking with the authors and then talking with uh, their institution if needed. 
I see. I imagine this doesn't come up that often. Is that correct? That's it's, correct. It's not like, oh, there are five problem cases a month, is no, it? No, no, no. It's, it's fortunate this it's a rare occurrence. And what about the retractions and corrections? I've seen an occasional retraction and correction in a journal. How often does that take place? Retra- retractions and corrections are more commonly done because either something was missed in the page proofs by the authors or by the publisher in how it was transcribed from the original text to the final published piece. Uh, so it's more common that it is simply something that was missed in the page proof stage than something related to scientific misconduct or fraud. So a retraction or correction in a scientific journal is not uh, typically uh, a scandal or a career-ending embarrassment. It's just that. It's a correction. Now, um, most journals that uh, I've seen uh, allow authors to uh, request reviewers or not request uh, reviewer, uh, reviewers. But the other thing is most journals, my impression, allow the reviewers, when they review a manuscript, to actually know who the author is, the institution, and the countries of origin. Wouldn't it be a little bit more fair and impartial if the reviewers were blinded uh, to author, institution, and country as an example? Uh, I myself am an Anglophile and have some doubts about the national policies of France. So I'm always worried that if I see a French paper that it might uh, have some element of bias, at least in my own mind. Uh, So I just can't help but wonder if perhaps that might not be acting uh, with other reviewers as well. It's a very interesting question and certainly one that comes up frequently. There have actually been studies done on this, looking at whether or not knowledge of the authors or the institution altered the quality of the review and the fairness of the review. And in fact, the studies have shown that it doesn't. I think reviewers are very fair and very critical in their reviews. Um, and um, the studies that have been done on this have shown that, in fact, no, having that knowledge really doesn't affect the qualities of the review. You're telling me that actually there's scientific data that shows it doesn't matter. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Um, I know that the journal has a peer reviewer ranking or evaluation process. Can you tell us about how this works? Right. So for every review that is done, the editors um, review the quality of that review just to make certain that we are getting excellent reviews so that if someone is not consistently turning in quality reviews, you might not want to select them for a manuscript review. In general, it's looking at Did the reviewer evaluate the quality of the abstract, the scientific method that was performed in the study? Did they comment on the different components of the paper, the abstract, the methods, the results, and the comment section? So even the reviewers, the peer reviewers are reviewed. Is there any weight given to whether the reviewer turns a review in, in a timely fashion? Because the whole process is electronic, the timing of the review and the length of turnaround time is also captured in the system so we know, you know, how fast reviews are turned around. Now, it's expected that sometimes, you know, it's going to take a little bit longer and people will ask, you know, is it okay if I take more than the allotted time to review this manuscript because I'm going to be out of town or I've been ill? And that's absolutely acceptable. I mean, you know, everyone is human and has different things going on in their lives. How is a journal judged? How do the editors measure success? Is there a ranking of journals? How does that work? 
the success of a journal can be evaluated on a number of different fronts. The circulation of the journal, the popularity of the journal, the quality of the submissions that the journal gets are all part and parcel of how successful a journal is. In addition, there's something called a citation index where they rank the overall quality of the manuscripts that are published in the journal and compare them to how many times those articles are then cited by other journals. Who in the world calculates the citation frequency? Are there people who do nothing else but look at every single journal and all every single paper published and all the citations in it and then enter it into a database? There is a group that actually does this that determines what the um, ranking is of that journal and what the, the citation index. It's the Science Citation Index. They do this on a yearly basis, and you can look up what the value is for each journal. Are there any other criteria that the journal uses besides its citation ranking? I think the biggest one that you use is the quality of submissions that you're getting and the number of submissions that you're getting, because as the journal becomes more popular, you're going to be getting more submissions um, and hopefully of higher quality. The peer review process has been criticized because it biases scientific publication toward conformity and perhaps can be manipulated to a degree. What do you see as the offsetting benefits of peer review? In general, when a manuscript undergoes peer review, the manuscripts get better. They become more focused. They become more clear. When an author, and myself included, um, when you write a manuscript, often you are so close to it, it's difficult to see the flaws in it and the ways to make it easier to read and the ways to make it more applicable. I, I think most times when you get a revised paperback that has taken into account the comments from the reviewers, most people will say, you know, actually thank you for these comments because the paper is much better now. What about the concern about enforcing conformity and after all, if a paper is perhaps a bit unconventional or supports an unpopular idea or an idea that isn't widely accepted, can the peer review process thwart new ideas? I haven't seen that happen, although I suppose it is possible. In general, the manuscripts are judged based on how strong the evidence is and what the strength of the trial or study was. Was the study design appropriate? Was it conducted appropriately? And, you know, is the topic of interest? Is it something that we have 50,000 other studies on that same exact topic, or is it something novel? And, in fact, we tend to go for the more novel things than the studies that are doing uh, something that has been done previously. Right now there's a dispute or a controversy around the world and really affecting all scientific publications in which many people contend that if a government, not just the United States government, but, but any government, underwrites a study that the results in the publication should be available at uh, no charge to the public. Yet these medical journals and scientific journals charge a subscription rate or a fee for looking at a specific paper. How do you feel uh, as an associate editor for a medical journal about this idea about open access? Right, and there are some journals that have open access from the beginning and some journals that have open access after a certain period of time, which is the case for obstetrics and gynecology. My understanding is that the NIH has requested that any manuscript that is supported by funds from a research grant, that that manuscript have open access, meaning that it be available to anyone who wanted it. And the goal 
here is that people who have submitted a manuscript that is then going to be accepted at a journal, that that copy of the manuscript is submitted to the National Library of Medicine where anyone would be able to have access to it. Now, that manuscript would not be in its final form. It wouldn't be in its typeset form for the journal, but you could get access to it. Until the time when all journals have completely open access, this is at least one way to be able to get the information from these publicly funded trials. Wouldn't this spell doom for the journals because then there'd be no subscription monies to even support them? You know, the NIH has requested that these manuscripts be submitted, but I don't know that they always are submitted. In addition, they're not in the final form, so, you know, it's not as easy to read as it is in a journal itself. I want to thank Dr. Catherine Spawn, Associate Editor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Program Scientist for the Maternal-Fetal Medicine Unit of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.